Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Overlap. I am joined, of course, as always, by my friend Rian. Rian, I've taken a couple days now to uh, really understand, you know, the results in England, of course, and, you know, how sobering and and almost depressing those results were. Um, but, of course, we want to talk a little bit more about Spain, La Liga, and the major game from last weekend, El Clasico. Rian... We didn't watch this game together, which probably was best for my mental health. Um, but this was this was a very, very good game, like a very good classico for a neutral fan. I'm trying to be as objective as possible, and like it was, it was genuinely good football from two teams that have not played well in the last couple of years. Just over, generally have not played that well. I don't know, Rian. Hi. First off, did you get a chance to even watch any of the Champions League games or anything this week? Then we can get to the Classico. The, the Classico is going to just depress me even more. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course I watched some some Champions League games. I, I, I'm sure that Elias is throwing that out there because Barcelona looked much better in their Champions yes. League games. Hey, I'm not even you. Yes, you got it. <laughs> but no, no, we, I did watch. I did watch. I mean, they looked great against against Juve, a, a Juve team that, yeah, this is are looking like a team that they might not win Serie A this year. This is like the, this is the, they almost didn't win it last year, to be fair. They won by just a point. So like, this could be the year that their reign finally ends, but no, the, I, I agree with you. The uh, Clasico was good. Was a was a very good. I think forty the first forty five minutes I thought were was really really good. I mean, even outside of the first ten minutes were were wild and crazy. The, the two two goals in the first ten minutes, but overall, I thought the first half there was a lot of quality. And if the game I, I, to me felt like it tailed off a little bit in the second half. Um, and I mean, Barcelona's performance in the second half was just not good enough, really. Um, but you know, Elias, I, it's very interesting looking back at that game now with the context of what happened midweek to both in both Madrid and Barcelona Barcelona's game, and we can talk about Madrid a bit more um, shortly. But I thought the biggest difference between what happened against Juve and what happened against uh, Real Madrid is the midfield balance as I, I harp on it almost every week for a lot of teams, but Pjanic playing next to De Jong was just a much, much more fluid duo than anything that we've seen of De Jong playing with Sergio Busquets. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting narrative there that I think needs to be talked about between what double pivot works best for Barcelona right now. I think every Barcelona fan agrees that Sergio Busquets is, has been one of the best defensive midfielders maybe in the world prior to 2018, I would say. Um, since then, I think his dip in form has been extremely noticeable and it's been exacerbated, I think, last year especially. So... <clears throat> Uh, this isn't to say Pjanic, and this is, we'll get to the El Clasico in a second, but this isn't to say that Pjanic is a much better player and a much better passer than Busquets at all. It's more to say that in Komen's system, in a double pivot in which your defensive midfielders are required to cover for the, the I guess, the 
almost overload of attackers, right, especially through the middle, you need to be able to have the legs to run back. Busquets just does not have that. And Pjanic obviously offers more in that in that area. Um, but what he also offers is a little bit of great on top of that. And it's not to the level of Busquets, in my opinion. I think the chemistry is still going to be worked on with, between Pjanic and De Jong. But you saw kind of the start of that in the Juventus game the other night in which you, just De Jong and Pjanic work so well together. And I, I, I watched them for large parts of that game. I almost allude their positioning to two balls at the end of a string. They were almost always equidistant to each other, but in like a rotating position. So if you think of two balls at the end of a string, just rotating like along the, the X, Y axis of a field, they basically just went in circles like that. And and that's, that's all it was. And they covered so much ground that way. So they were, they were fantastic to watch, but I think you saw a lot of changes from, Komen's classical performance to his midweek performance against Juve. Positive changes, I will, I will say. So in the classical, right, you saw Busquets start, start along, uh, excuse me, alongside De Jong. Then you saw a very interesting mix up front. You obviously saw Griezmann get benched, which was kind of the, the, uh, the one, I guess, major, I don't want to call it a shock factor, but pretty, pretty big, big balls from Komen basically to bench Griezmann. And then he started a combination of Pedri, Messi, Coutinho, and Ansu Fati. And I'm not saying that's a bad lineup. I just don't know if it made sense. I think even with Pedri's talent, I don't know if a Classico was the game to start him in, despite his midweek heroics last week in the Champions League. I, I just think that someone like Griezmann in that match would have been Pretty important to have someone who has the experience of playing at that high of a level so consistently. So I don't I don't know about Coma's choices for the attacking the attacking front in the Classico. Obviously, Atsu Fati is an incredible young player and almost deservedly a starter in this Barcelona side. Um, but again, I just don't know if the chemistry is there between all four of those players. Coutinho being the one player that I think stands out to me that needs needs to understand what his position is. And I think Coleman needs to make aware, make him aware of what his position is. I don't know. Cause I don't think he's necessarily a left winger. And I also don't think he's completely a number 10. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly what Coutinho's position is. So it, it's been, it's been an interesting week as a Barcelona fan. Oh, and we haven't even touched the fact that Bartomeu was sacked. So we'll get to that later, but um yeah, it. I don't know what. What did you make of? Uh, I guess the the rest of the Barcelona performance in the first half because I I agree the first half of the Clasico was definitely very much a back and forth. Yeah, I think you make a good point on Pjanic. The the chemistry is maybe not quite there yet, but I think the most important thing is De Jong. Here and who fits best with him? And right now it's Pjanic. And and last season it, they couldn't find someone who could fit very well with him. And that's the most important player in in Barcelona's midfield and just for in the team going forward. If De Jong turns into the type of player that we expect, he's the most important player in the midfield. And you have to make sure that the guys around him benefit his strengths and cover up for his weaknesses. 
So I think Pjanic going forward is is we we both think that that's a that's a better matchup with uh, De Jong and hopefully we get to see him express himself a bit more as their chemistry builds. But I just want to touch on one last thing: the Coutinho point. Right over the weekend, we saw him playing in the number ten, and and Kuman has tried to put him there in this first uh, few weeks and has some sort of trust in him there. We didn't obviously didn't play him there against Juve, which was the right call. And you are completely right. Elias Coutinho is not a number 10. We, I mean, the man has never been a number 10 in his entire career. And we've never known really what position he's very good at, right? He's getting an actual run at being, the number 10 for Barcelona right now. And he does, he has no qualities of a number 10. He's, he's not the guy who supplies really good, like shot opportunities for his wingers and, and the forwards. He's, he's a good link up player. I, I think we can agree with that. He's got nice touches, but he's not someone who looks for chances for some, for other players. And, we know that he scores a great goal every six months, like that. So we can always pencil that in. But he's, he's not Willian, man. Two yeah. different players. <laughs> no, no, they no, they are the same. They are the same. <laughs> neither is a number ten. <laughs> but but that is neither here nor there on the Willian <laughs> part. But uh, no, I think you're totally right. I think the best version of this team, which I feel like we uh, at least harped on at some points last season, is Griezmann and. Messi being both in that central role and one playing behind the other and figuring out some sort of chemistry between the two of them. You have to allow that to happen. And whether one comes deep at, at some points and the other one goes long and, and you let them figure that out, I think. But I think the best version of that attack is Griezmann and Messi playing centrally, neither of them out on the wing because it benefits neither of them. A hundred percent. I mean, we saw that against Juve, right? That's exactly what we saw. And look how many chances they created. Because while I think Griezmann's confidence is probably not where it could be or should be for a player of his caliber, he did so well with his link-up play in a more vertical style with Lionel Messi, right? Griezmann is an incredibly intelligent player, and he can find spaces in between the channels. Messi is the best player of all time and can find him in those spaces. It makes sense to play them more vertically rather than Griezmann making runs off the wing when he doesn't have the pace nor the necessary skill set to play that position, right? That's why I love the fact that Komen started Dembele in midweek against Juventus because I thought he is the perfect profile, and obviously he was given that he scored, um, the, for that game with Griezmann making runs in behind, Messi supplying Dembele, albeit Messi basically played central defensive left winger, like left back winger. I don't know what he played against Juve or, or Real Madrid for that matter. But that style, I think, fits the rest of the team better where you have Griezmann in a more central position. You have Dembele, Ansu Fati, a mix of Pedri and Trincao on the wings. And of course, Coutinho can be, I think, a fantastic super sub. I honestly don't know if Coutinho is going to be starting for Barcelona going forward. Of course, he's injured right now, so we'll see after the international break. But I don't know if Coutinho is the person to start every game for Barcelona right now. In the same way that I thought he did really well coming off the bench for Bayern, and that's not a knock to him. I think it's just an, it's just exactly what the team needs right now. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's 
it's a work in progress. We know that, but there's some good steps forward. And, and that two nil is almost flatters Juve because they got battered in that game for the most part. You know, they, they couldn't really keep up with Barcelona's passing movements and on their own. end, you know, they're granted they're missing Ronaldo and they, and they missed a, a, a real talisman up top. I mean, Alvaro Morata hitting the hat trick of offside goals, which just typifies is just this typifies him beautifully. I mean, it, but it, all of that aside, let's just get on to Real Madrid side of this, right? I, I, they were they were good enough to win over the weekend, right? They they didn't um, they didn't play poorly. I don't think that they played fantastically. Um, it was I. I Think it was a good performance from Fede Valverde, especially. Stop. But Stop outside of content. it, <laughs> but but I mean, we saw midweek the team misses Hazard a lot, right? I mean, I mean, I, I'm not yeah. saying anything. I'm not saying anything that's that's not already that's known, new, right? right. <laughs> but but Vinicius. <laughs> whether whether Karen Benzema actually did tell Ferland Mendy to not pass him in the second half or not, Vinicius has not really progressed, I feel like, in the two years that he has joined Real Madrid. He's still such a shoddy finisher. And at times he gets into very good positions, but ultimately it doesn't feel like he's making any steps forward in his development as a player. And that is really difficult to do at at Real Madrid in general for for young players to come in and get thrown straight into the fire like this. So I mean, I think even he is desperate for Eden Hazard to be back in the team on a more regular basis because it would lighten the I think pressure on him and and Rodrigo should throw in too, who, who's another very another very young winger, Brazilian winger on Real Madrid who's playing a lot more than he probably should be at his age and development in his career, really. But um, it's just looked flat uh, for a lot of that game against Gladbach. Really flat energy, which is not something that you would expect from a Real Madrid team in the Champions League game. And from everything that looked somewhat good on the weekend and the main core veteran guys bailing them out over and over, which is still, I mean, it's still happening. It's still something that, from time to time can be banked upon when you have a Modric and you have Sergio Ramos and the team that has such an effect on the rest of the Real Madrid players. This feels stale. They feel very stale and it feels like everything is just kind of holding on. And it almost somewhat reminds me of the Chelsea 2015-16 season coming off of winning the title where similar to Madrid, the run into the to the title, the last like eight to ten games, it was just getting by, getting wins and just barely getting wins, a one-nil win, a penalty here, a penalty there, to just get over the hump and win the title. And then the next season happens, no signings are brought in, very similar to Chelsea's twenty fifteen summer. And it just looks stale. And it looks like the same energy is not there. And in the Champions League, as we've seen in the first two games, and and I'll go back to that 2015 season, Chelsea barely made it out of the group stage that time, too. And it's taking more 
energy than it should right now for Real Madrid. Yeah, that's that's the thing that we talked about, I think, last week on the pod about the the levels, right, that Real Madrid aspire to be at and the players that they need to get to that level, right? I've said consistently that I do not think that Real Madrid are a good team. And I think their last two Champions League performances are a good example of that, not because of the results, but more so the manner of play, because Casemiro and Benzema having to bailing them have to having to bail them out in the Champions League group stages is not the way that Real Madrid aspire to be playing. They, I think, would rather pride themselves right now under Zidane, of course, on team play, cohesive, you know, synergy between the lines. And right now, I don't know if that's there in terms of the level that Real Madrid want to be at. And that goes back to my first point, being that I don't know if they have those players, right? I, I, I said this, I think, in our La Liga season preview or the other week. If you take out one of Benzema, Modric, or I should say Benzema, Tony Cruz, Sergio Ramos, that team falls much flatter all of a sudden. You lose a lot of goals in Benzema, right? And just a very, very, again, intelligent player. You lose an absolute leader and captain in Sergio Ramos and also a strong defender, might I add. Um, so you lose that, you lose a lot. If you lose Tony, Tony Cruz, you lose potentially the only good creativity in their midfield right now. Luka Modric is also amazing, you know, an amazing creative player, but he's not starting for them right now. Um, and so if you lose any one of those three players, Real Madrid fall even flatter. And they're basically one injury away from that happening. And I don't see any of the young players being able to step up into that mold right now. Vinicius has been given, you know, those opportunities. And in my opinion, I thought he, he did pretty well in El Clasico over the weekend. Um, I will say Serginho Dest, I thought, you know, had him in his pocket most of the time, I'll be honest. But um, Vinicius did show flashes of why Real Madrid signed him, other than Papa Perez trying to find the next Neymar, of course. But, um, yes, I, I thought... Vinicius, I think I still think Vinicius is a good player, but outside of that, you have Martin Odegaard, who is currently again out, but that's about it, in my opinion. So Real Madrid have a long way to pick themselves up with. Yeah, it's it'll the next couple of months will be really interesting for the future of Zidane, because I I really feel like this could turn quickly. I mean it's for Madrid, it can always turn quickly, right? So it's it, but I really do feel like it it might it might turn very fast on Zidane again. And um I mean it'll always be entertaining. But shall shall we move on to uh the other side nice. of Madrid? Nice. Yes, let's <laughs> let's move over to the other side of Madrid. We are of course talking about Hetafe. No, we're talking about Atletico Madrid. Atleti playing Real Batiste over the weekend after the Classico. And they, of course, went on to win against Real Batiste 2-0, courtesy of Marcus Lorente, their quiet beast, and also uh, Tottenham superfan, and Luis Suarez late on to seal the win. Rian, the one thing that I think I took away, I honestly have taken away from Atletico, like Atletico in the last couple of weeks, is that they're not lacking goals anymore. Like they, they re, that was the biggest problem. I have to hand it to Simeone as much as, you know, crap that we give him for really not being able to figure out why Jao Felix is not starting every game slash why Diego Costa is even on payroll is 
fair, but they are not lacking goals right now. And I think that's been sufficiently helped by, by Luis Suarez and outside of just his direct goal contributions. Yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're finishing. The finishing level is higher this season for sure than last, you know, and it helps when there's, it, it helps when you can't go lower. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it helps when there's less of Yannick Carrasco on the, on the pitch too. So, um, now I, I, Look, this past weekend, again, we saw it was weird. Again, starting Marcus Llorente and, and Suarez up top and, and Jao Felix he came on as a sub late on. Um, look, I, he Diego Simeone, he's got a pass for me this week because midweek he played um, he played Jao Felix and Suarez up top together, not Jao Felix out on the wing. He played him actually up top together and Felix was absolutely magnificent against Jesse Marsh's uh, Salzburg, unfortunately, but he was fantastic. He was, I mean, I just want him to give the keys to the guy and let him cook, just let him cook in the middle of the pitch. Um, but it's, but it was either way over the weekend, another three points for Letty who are sitting fifth right now. But like you said, the, the goal scoring and the actual, Finishing of chances. Um, I mean, they're they're fourth in expected goals so far in the first through the through the first uh, month or so here, which, and outperforming their expected goals, which didn't happen at any point last season. So it's all good steps forward, and the hope is that we see more of what of what happened in midweek, where we see more of Suarez and Jao Felix up top together, because not only is it great for Jao Felix to be more involved in the central parts of the central areas of the game where, where he can be most effective. But Luis Suarez is a great strike partner to play with Jao Felix. I mean, Jao Felix is going to, it almost extends Suarez because Suarez can stay up top even more. I mean, something that he already did before, whether it was out of design or uh, weight, but it's Jao Felix is a great link-up partner for him. And Suarez is a great link-up partner for Jao Felix because that's a a proven goal scorer, someone who's going to finish a lot of the chances that Felix sets up for him. But, you know, altogether, those two, those two together are going to create a lot of chances if given the opportunity to gel, and their chemistry is only going to get better as they play together. And Look, Luis Suarez is, is not he's not dead. He he's shown that he still has a lot in the tank when it comes to just being a prototypical poacher and center forward. That's exactly what Luis Suarez was signed to do, right? The hundred percent is he was signed to be a poacher, and it's taken a couple of weeks for I think Simeone to figure it out. But we saw both in the Batiste game and, unfortunately for Jesse Marsh, the Salzburg game, Simeone got it right. He got it right in the sense that, you know, off of the back of a Celta really not impressive win, um, he, he was able to show that, or I guess, help João Felix and Luis Suarez work well in tandem. And honestly, Luis Suarez and João Felix could not be more opposite players but they complement each other really well in that Zhao Felix does really all the hard work outside of scoring goals right Great now point. for yeah. Yeah, for, for Luis Suarez. Whereas 
Luis Suarez is the world's best poacher in, in right? It, I, I think there's no one better that, than you would want standing in front of goal from between basically, I would say six to 18 yards ish, maybe even 12 to 18 yards. There's no one that I would want more taking a shot. That's clear on goal. Um, that honestly might include Messi, but it, I just think that their chemistry is really growing now. And you're starting to see that they're figuring out positionally where they should be. Jao Felix is obviously going to learn a lot from Luis Suarez, and he's certainly going to learn how to be a proper number 10, um, I think. And he might honestly also be one of the only few remaining true number 10s because Mesut Ozil, like we talked about the other day on the, the Premier League podcast, is really the best one, I think, in the world, the true number 10. Um, and there aren't that many left. So maybe Christian Pulisic, but I actually disagree. I don't think he's a number 10. So anyway, that, that's my point on Atletico. The only, the only, I think, thing that they should be worried about is, this sounds weird to say, but defensively, I, I don't know if they've been extremely sound. They obviously are not going to live up to their defensive record from La Liga last season. But it, yeah, that, that's something to keep an eye on because... The defensive line hasn't really impressed me. Trippier, unfortunately, hasn't started the season off too well. Luddy didn't even start um, this past week. It was Hermos in his place. So defensively, it's a little shakier. But we shall see, of course, how this weekend shapes up when they go on this weekend. I believe they play. Let me think about this. Osasuna. Yes, they do play Osasuna this weekend. Um, the only other two results, I guess, that I will shout out from La Liga this weekend will be both Sevilla and Valencia lost. In uh, Sevilla losing to Ibar 1-0 and Valencia losing to Elche 2-1. So really losing ground on being able to make up for a Barcelona loss. Um, but that's their fault. I'm not going to complain. So in a, in a season where the top two teams are not very strong, this is, I think, Sevilla and Valencia's best chances and it goes to challenge for the title. So with that, Rihanna, I think we're going to take a quick break. And of course, I'm so excited to talk about this next part. The fact that Bartomeu was sacked. So excited. Uh, Rian, it was... A lovely Tuesday afternoon when I, of course, checked my phone. I checked Twitter. And as usual, I was scrolling. And then as usual, I was refreshing. And I refreshed Twitter to a breaking tweet from one of Barcelona's insiders. Um, and that tweet read in Spanish. I'm going to translate. I'm hearing that Bartomeu may be out the door in the coming hours. And if I had a penny for every time I've heard the phrase in the coming hours as it relates to Barcelona news, transfer news, etc., I truly would be a millionaire. So I pass on. Didn't really think much of it. Then, then even more insiders started talking about it. Wow. Bartomeu might actually get the sack. Bartomeu might actually resign. Ah, and there it was. The final tweet that really made me believe it. The official Barcelona account tweeting live stream with President Bartomeu starting this evening at 845. And that, that, Rian, is when I knew that Josep Mario Bartomeu was no longer the president 
of Barcelona. Thank, thank you so much for sticking with us, you know, through these trying times. I, I appreciate everyone's support. So I want to thank God first off, because without him, none of this would have been possible. Um, it, it, it's been a truly glorious <laughs> last 48 hours. By God, at least means messy because that's the only way this was ever going to happen so quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, partially. Of course, I've always said that he is God. So, um, yeah, this was a. There is never a peaceful afternoon in Barcelona. There just there never is for any Barcelona insider that works for the Athletic, you know, ESPN, Sam Marsden, you know, etc. They, I hope those guys get paid because they are working nonstop on this stuff. And I, and I really applaud their efforts. So yeah, Bartomeu is no longer president of Barcelona. And that is huge news for the institution, for the club, for the players, for Messi, for the future. I mean, that is, I think, the biggest hurdle that Barcelona have been facing the last five years. The fact that he was reelected in the first place back in 2015 after winning the treble was probably one of the biggest mistakes next to letting Ronaldo, the number nine, go in 1997. With that, Those two, I think, are the biggest mistakes the club have, has ever made. Um, and so after disastrous planning, after horrible management of the club's finances after tearing apart Messi's relationship with the club. The man Satan himself has left. He has resigned. And of course there are a lot of questions about where this leaves Barcelona next. But the one thing that makes me the happiest about all of this is that there's really something to look forward to in Barcelona's future for the first time in five years. And I genuinely mean that. So I'm over. I can't even tell you how happy I am about this. <laughs> uh, you should know too. It, it's not just Bartomeu. The entire board resigned. Correct. Yes. All right? all the cronies. All the cronies. All left. the cronies. <laughs> yeah. So the entire board resigns on or makes it takes a decision to resign on Tuesday, and so that, that leaves me with a couple of questions. Here, Elias is one. Uh, what happens to all of the debts that they are leaving behind. And two, what is the timeline now? What, how quickly does it all move now for the next president to be elected? So just a little bit of context, right? Bartomeu was facing a vote of no confidence after, I think it was about 20,000 associates who are club owners, right? Barcelona's publicly owned club by about 100,000 members. Um, voted to start vote of no confidence proceedings, which Rihanna and I have talked about on the podcast before. And so the reason why Bartomeu resigned is that he basically knew he was out the door. Um, so that again begs the question, why did he resign now? If, you know, the statutes of the club basically state that he and the board themselves are personally liable for the debt that club, the clubs owe, or excuse me, the club owes. Um, to answer your question, I think the pressure genuinely became too much. I think it was more political than financial. And I think within his own board of directors, I think they were all thinking that they were going to be going, whether it's through the vote of no confidence or leaving themselves. And Bartomeu had no one else to point to as as support. He, he, I don't think he had any more kind of mouthpieces within the club anymore that he could rely on. And so there was, I think, quite literally no other option but to resign. And so... 
where this leaves him and the club's directors or former directors responsible for their the, the club's financials, there have been rumors going around that there's a legal way out of those proceedings for Bartomeu and the, the former board. I, I don't know the details of that. There have also been rumors going around that Bartomeu and the old board of directors are actually only liable for about 15% of that debt. Um, so I think that still has yet to be seen, um, what the final decision is there. But the biggest thing is that I think we can probably look forward to a better financial situation in about 10 years, hopefully for, for the club. Um, but in terms of your second question, which was what happens now, right? I think that's a question on everyone's mind. Well, what happens now is that an interim, um, I guess interim president, I should say, has been, um, put in place by by the board and he is responsible over the next basically one to three months putting together a new set of elections and it's maximum three months so basically the latest day that elections could be held would be i think january 9th or 10th somewhere in that in that range but in all likelihood they will probably be in early december so that the new board will have basically the end of the year to to kind of understand what they need to do etc and then move on to their new role so that's basically what's been going on within barcelona i i don't know i guess what's going to happen outside of that um of course there are going to be a lot of you know a lot of talk about who the new president is going to be Honestly, I'm trying my best to stay away from that because with Victor Font, who I think is the the leading candidate right now to become the Barcelona president, um, probably the most well-known, at least on social media, um, that, there's a bit of a dichotomy between who the Socies vote for, which I should note for Barcelona are of an older age group, so they're not really social media fanatics, um, versus you know other potential politicians slash lawyers um, that are familiar with the club. So that's basically the news on Barcelona. And uh, I did I mention this to Elias a couple, a, a day or two ago, that for me personally, the funniest possible ending to all of this is, you know, January, a new president comes in, uh, all of this new hope, and rumors start flying around about Xavi starts... Xavi starts throwing stuff around in the press about how he would love to come back to Barcelona. There, maybe even Messi throws a quote around too. How he'd love to see Xavi back. And all this time, things are going great. De Jong's looking great. Pjanic is looking like more than just a uh, balancing the budget type of asset. And the team wins the title only for Ronald Koeman to be quietly and ceremoniously, unceremoniously kind of shooed out of the door and Xavi comes in while Ronald Koeman, maybe half an hour after being released by Barcelona, comes back to the Dutch national team just in time for the Euros. <laughs> and, and maybe the Dutch national team does better than they have been in the last two months under Frank De Boer, who got fired in the MLS. Oh my God. Oh, horrible. <laughs> so, I mean, the funniest, that's the funniest scenario for me is, is this all goes great. And Xavi comes in in the summer and Kuman just goes right back to the Dutch national team. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a little, it was like a little internship here. <laughs> <laughs> the Barcelona internship. I like that. Well, I mean, it's not like an incredibly far-fetched idea. That's, that's, I think the point that we should also make is that that concept is, 
is all possible. Like for Komen to be fired by the new president at the end of the year, which is in likelihood looking right now that it could be Victor Font, who has publicly said he will bring in Xavi as the next coach and fire Komen regardless of results. So this is not... This is not like an unlikely scenario, I should point out. Whether he goes back to the Dutch national team, I think is a different story. But I don't, I know Frank de Boer will not be the coach of the Dutch national team come the year. I can almost guarantee you that. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's actually almost, it's like too predictable with how crazy it is. It's almost too predictable. But yeah, I mean, I think we can, we can expect that. Most likely, Ronald Koeman will not be the manager of Barcelona next year. I mean, he didn't even win two two years in a row like Valverde. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> of course he has less leeway. Um, well, that, that's, again, another crazy month in Barcelona. I'm sure it'll just get crazier over the next I can't. Year. I can't wait what the next couple months hold. But, but uh, before we get out of here, Elliot, we should talk about the league leaders. In La Liga right now, Real Sociedad, who unfortunately lost to Napoli today in Europa League, a very good match. But, um, Elias, how have we gotten here? And it's still only, what, six, seven games into the season, so let's not get crazy with it. But (laughs) what impresses you the most about Sociedad right now? What impresses me the most about Real Sociedad is, I would say it's twofold. One, I think they're an incredibly coached side. And... They remind me a little bit of Southampton in some ways. I, I don't know why, but in that I think Southampton and Real Sociedad are both really well-coached sides. And they also kind of have a history, at least a very recent history, of really developing young talent. And Southampton also kind of has a similar um, history to them as well. And so Real Sociedad, I think, have gotten to this position not based off of luck, but truly based off of the skill and the talent that they have. Um, have they gone an easy run of fixtures? Maybe easier than some teams, but they have also played Valencia, albeit they did lose to them. But it should it should not be subdued, the other results in La Liga that they put up against genuinely impressive teams, right? We're talking about your Hetafes of the world, right? Teams that, again, played really, really well last season. And so... I was very, and I still am very impressed by Real Sociedad. Of course, I'm, I'm very impressed by Porto. I'm very impressed by Isak this season. Uh, my personal, you know, favorite player on Real Sociedad. And then. You got the ball as well, right? Exactly. He started the season yep. wonderfully. So, yep. sorry, I didn't know if that was the next name you were going to say. It, it, no, it was. That's perfect. Okay. You, yeah, you took yeah. the name right out of my mouth. A, a player that in all likelihood will be going to Euros, Euro 2021 now uh, for Spain. And so. That team is just very well coached. And that, I think, is the biggest takeaway for me for Real Sociedad. And the last point I want to make on them is that they also have David Silva in that team. They have a David Silva who is not, okay, going to be Controversially, controversially. controversially. David Silva, who was going to join Lazio up until the very last moment where he he was just about to sign papers with them. And... um, Sociedad came in last minute and uh, it left a lot of a lot of sour tastes in the mouths of uh, Lazio <laughs> fans and, and board members, especially quite. Yeah. So that wasn't great for Lazio, but for Spanish football, David Silva coming back was amazing. So having him back as almost a, an experienced 
you know, a player with experience to coach these younger players is really something that you can't, can't really buy, you know, um, obviously you can, but go with the metaphor for a second. Um, so yes, I, I think I'm very impressed with Real Sociedad. I think their consistency in goal scoring as well should not be, um, underestimated. And I think they're a dangerous side. I, I almost think they're the Everton of La Liga this season. So we shall see where that leads them. I think up until basically Christmas, but I have high hopes for Real Sociedad this season. Yeah. And it, and it should be noted too. Uh, even though I, I don't think we're going to get too outlandish in, in what we think that thinking that they might be able to challenge for the title, but the underlying numbers through the first seven games are still really, really good. Um, 14 goals, three allowed, but on top of that second in expected goals and first in expected points. So they're, meaning they're dominating a lot of the game, a lot of the games so far, you know, they're not winning these games just by a goal or two or, or by a chance here or there. They're, they're thoroughly outplaying all the teams that they're play, that they've uh, faced so far. And that is a pretty good predictive way to, to see if a team is going to be able to last on a longer term throughout the season. And, and we'll see perhaps David Silva gets more integrated into the team. He started today against Napoli. So I think as the season goes on, he gets more integrated into the team and there's still a lot of world-class quality in that player. So it, it's all good things from uh Sociedad. I just wish, damn, what would this team look like with, if, if uh, Odegaard had just stayed one more season? Oh my God. Yeah. That would have been the, Biggest change, I think, for them. I think uh, they probably still would have done just as well. Yeah. Perhaps um, David Silva does not join the club. Perhaps the, right, perhaps yeah. Then you don't get that. But I think they probably still would have done just as well with Martin Odegaard. So yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I don't I don't know where they would be, but that's my opinion. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the last point that we wanted to make in La Liga for this pod. Of course, we'll be watching all this weekend's action coming up in Spain as well as England. And we will keep you guys posted next week. So with that, thank you guys for listening as always and have a good one. Thanks guys.